0: Hi everybody. Welcome to episode 20 of Mike Check on Sports. I'm Steve Napolitani. This podcast has been a really rewarding experience. I've learned so much about these great towns, and I hope you have too. Each one's story comes with a lot of hard work and determination. My next guest began his career calling basketball games at Marist College. He was a longtime member of the Imus in the Morning radio show and he is currently the Knicks play-by-play guy on MSG Networks and the voice of the NBA for ABC and ESPN. It's the soon-to-be-inducted Hall of Famer, Mike Breen. Mike, how are you? Hello, Stevie. How you doing, bud? I'm doing well. So, obviously, a difficult time we're all going through. How are you spending your days?
1: Well, I'm home with my family. Um, two of my adult children uh, are home full-time now again, which is actually, from a parental standpoint, has been really nice being able to spend so much time with them. Um, you know, just about what everybody else is doing, trying to get some exercise every day. I've got a uh, five-year-old golden retriever that I walk every day nice. and, um, you know, doing some reading, doing binge-watching, um, listening to music, a little bit, uh, you know, just a little uh, little bit of everything. And there has been some work. I've actually had, had some nice things uh, to do with the MSG Network, with the anniversary of the, uh, the 1970 championship team, with the mm-hmm. Linsanity Week. So uh, enough to keep busy, but uh, right. really looking forward to... Uh, to going back to work and, and obviously for, for the country to turn around.
0: You know, talk about the 1970 team. I read that, you know, you were nine years old then, and that was, that's a game you wish you could have called if you could have won. Yes, because it, you know, it was my favorite team
1: as a kid. Um, That team in many ways, excuse me, uh, was why I fell in love with the game of basketball. So, um, and then, you know, being in the, the position to be able to meet, all of the guys or most of the guys who played in it uh, because of my role as a Nick broadcaster. And then just the whole iconic moment and, and the drama and the first championship. There were so many parts of the narrative that, that made it one of the great special nights in, in not just New York sports history, but overall sports history. So yeah, that, I think that's the one. If I had to pick one, I wish I could have called. That's been the one. But um, it was it was fun as a nine-year-old to experience it, that's for sure.
0: Well, you grew up in Yonkers, New York. How did sports become a big part of your life?
1: Well, I'm I'm one of six boys, Stevie, so Mm. um, sports (laughs) was not an option in my house. It was was a way of life. And, and, you know, mainly my my dad was, um, he was a big, big sports fan. And I remember as a kid going to, you know, he played softball with his buddies and we would watch every sporting event for every sport on television. And then my older brothers, I had three of them, uh, three of the brothers, three of them were older, and and they all played sports, so it just, it was part of life, and you know, when you're a little kid, you just, you fall in love with it, um, because your dad's in love with it, and then your older brothers, you watch, so um, that was it. I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds of classic wiffle ball games in the front yard, (laughs) (laughs) So um, that stuff started it all for sure.
0: Was was the goal like a lot of kids? Was it to play professional sports? Did you dream about that, or did you always know broadcasting was kind of where you wanted to go?
1: Yeah, it's funny. Like I, I wanted to play as long as I could, and I guess when I was a kid, I I, I dreamed of of being a uh, either a Nick or a Met. Um, But I was fairly realistic, and and I did play in high school. um, But I knew once I was in high school that I that I was, <clears throat> had no shot at being a professional player so it was probably my junior year in high school where I started thinking okay well I'm not going to be able to play sports for a living but is there is there another job that I could do for a living mm-hmm. that has something to do with sports and, <clears throat> and I had a friend who, who lived nearby in the neighborhood who, who was in college at the time and he worked at their college radio station and um, he put the bug in my ear hey you know maybe you could do this you know, do broadcasting. And that's, that's when I first started thinking, you know, maybe that's an idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't anything set in stone then, but that's the first time I really got put into the back of my head.
0: Do you remember like which sports broadcasters you kind of looked up to as a kid and and enjoyed listening to?
1: Well, obviously anybody in New York, excuse me, anybody in New York, I guess I'm not used to use, I haven't been using my voice very much. So I got to keep clearing (laughs) my throat. Um, marv is the number one guy uh, from a basketball standpoint that you know anybody in our area w- w- was so fortunate to learn from him and watch him and uh, he was you know he was the was and still is the greatest basketball play-by-play voice of all time but there are a lot of others like i remember and this is i'm just talking like the the local guys at the mm-hmm. time i, I love jim gordon just love listening to jim gordon I, I thought his his passion and enthusiasm was um, you know it was really contagious. And then, of course, I was a Met fan, so you know Lindsay Nelson and Ralph Kiner and Bob Murphy were all all some of my favorite announcers. Because that's when you when you're a kid, you really listen to the local announcers. Um, they're the ones that uh, that really catch you when you're when you're a kid. But there were you know national announcers too. That I was a big Dick Enberg fan. I loved Kurt Gowdy. Mm-hmm. Um, Pat Summerall and um as I got older guys, uh one of my all time favorites is Vern Lundquist. I've always mm-hmm. been a huge Vern Lundquist fan. Uh Dick Stockton, you know, Marv gets <clears throat> Marv gets all the credit for NBA and all those finals and again there was nobody better, but Dick Stockton is to me he's one of the most underrated announcers of all time and he called a lot of NBA finals that I remember watching and he was another one. So (laughs) this is one of those questions, Stevie. I could go on and on. There's so many guys that I listened to and loved listening to when I was growing up.
0: And then how did you end up at Fordham? Did you want to stay local?
1: No, I actually wanted to. When when you live in a small house with a lot of kids, you want to get out and go (laughs) go away to college. Um, And I had had my heart set on going to the University of Hartford Hmm. because it it was a place that that I could afford, and it wasn't that far away, and they had a communications program, and they had a college radio station. So that, my whole senior year in college, and, and this was in the days back when you didn't decide when you were a junior where you are going, you waited till your senior year before you really started looking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I went up to visit the University of Hartford just to check it out, but I had been accepted, I was gonna go, and I went up to visit, and I went up on a January day, And it was so cold, and the campus was deserted. And then I went into the the radio station, and it was, you know, the picture in the the, uh,
0: brochure looked like it was this big radio station, and it was about the size of a closet.
1: (laughs) And I'm saying to myself, I I can't see myself going there. And it may have been a great communications program, and it may be a great school, but I just, as a kid, I, I just got a feeling of this is not the place for me. And then I went and, uh, you know, I said, OK, I got to swallow this. I'm going to stay home and I'm going to I'm going to commute to Fordham. And I went to visit Fordham and it was just the opposite. The campus, you know, had a had a vibrancy to it. The, the radio station, although it wasn't anything spectacular, it had this spirit to it and, and it was busy and people were bouncing around. And I said, OK, that's that's where I want to go.
0: And, you know, he said it wasn't spectacular, but then. Over the time, it's yourself, Michael K, John Giannone, Jack Curry, Bob Papa. Did you ever imagine at that time that you'd all be a part of the who's who of New York sports today?
1: No, of course, of course mm-hmm. not. You, you don't think of that, Stevie. Um, what I, I and I didn't know when I went there. I didn't know the history of it, and I didn't know of all the the various people who were in the sports media world who who went there and 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 um, worked at WFUB. So when you go and you start learning and you hear these names and you hear all the stories, you you feel this sense of of responsibility to to carry the torch and keep the standard. And it was it was just just the perfect place to learn about the business. And then you know when you start broadcasting games as a, a freshman or a sophomore, and you you start first by doing Fordham baseball games, then you do the Fordham you can do a Fordham football game and a soccer game. And then uh, you do the Ford of Women's Games, and then you get to do the Ford of Men's Games. Um, you know, that's when you start thinking about, oh boy, maybe maybe I could do this for a living. Mm. Michael K was, you know, immediately one of my my best friends at school, and we would uh, we would tease each other because his his dream job was to to call the Yankees, and mine was to call the Knicks, and mm. we would talk about it, and then then would laugh about it, and point at each other, look at these two fools dreaming about stuff like that. So. It's not something you really, you know, you really think about. I mean, you wish and you hope, but quite frankly, back then, um, you know, we really didn't think it was possible.
0: (laughs) And then in 1985, you start calling Marist College basketball games. How'd you get that gig?
1: Well, the first thing I did was um, I was working for a radio station up in Poughkeepsie and um, one of the sales guys wanted to do the high school game of the week. So, my first job was doing um, Dutchess County High School basketball and football games of the week on radio,
0: mm.
1: and I was by was doing them by myself, and you know, it's like on football games, you'd be out, you'd be sitting on the stands, there was no booth at a football game, a high school football game, mm. so you'd be out in the stands on a Friday night calling a football game or and, and, you know, the weather could be bad, and you're, you're going to get drenched sitting, <laughs> sitting there call again. I'm sure there were nine people listening, if that many, and they were all parents of the kids who were playing. But it was a great way to start. And um, then I, 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 I used to cover the Marist Games. Marist College basketball was the, was the biggest event in town at the time. And uh, the athletic director at Marist was a guy named Brian Colliery who was the head basketball coach at Blessed Sacrament High School in New Rochelle hmm. when I played for Salesian High School in New Rochelle. So he knew who I was and I knew who he was and we became friendly and then um, a job came open to do Marist games. And I wasn't the play-by-play guy. I was the analyst.
0: Hmm. All those years that I did Marist, and I did him for for several years, um, I worked with a guy named Dean Darling who was the play-by-play guy. And, and, and still was, there. Yeah, one of the
1: yes he is and he does army football Mm -hmm. Stevie that was one of the the great breaks for me to be able to work alongside him and watch him do play by play on television Mm -hmm. because I had no idea I did some radio at Fordham but I didn't do any TV and I had no idea how to do TV and he taught me so much and it also helped me just learn the business by being an analyst and get a feel for what an analyst
0: does so it turned out to be Just a great, great experience. And you really were one of the first people to see Rick Smits.
1: Yes. And, you know, we knew right away that uh, Smits was going to be good. And I remember um, I was friendly with Peter Vesey when he was a columnist for the Post at the time. And I remember telling him, hey, this guy, this kid from Marist is going to be, he's going to be a lottery pick one day. And Pete made fun of me saying there's no way a kid from Maris is going to be a lottery pick and he promised me he said that if he's a lottery pick the day I write my lottery story he goes I'll put you in the in the paper I'll put your name in it <laughs> and he held true to that bet because when when Smith got picked in the lottery he put my name in the paper and to me that was the, the greatest honor of all time having <laughs> Peter Bessie put my name in the paper but you know who else was on that team it was a center by the name of Rudy Bouguilow Hm. And Rudy Bouguerel wound up having a son whose name is Rudy Gobert.
0: Oh, I never do that.
1: Yep. Yep. Bougarel never made it to the NBA. I think he played professionally overseas for a bit, but he was another seven footer, uh, just like his son, but not as talented.
0: Wow. I did not know that. Well, then in 1988, you start doing sports with, on the IMIS in the morning program made your relationship with Don Imus so unique?
1: That was a, uh, a process that took a while. I, I was I, I was a huge Imus fan. I listened to Imus through high school, because uh, I used to drive to high school every morning. It was about a 35-minute drive, so I, I'd put on the Imus show every morning in high school. And then I'd go to college, and I, I drove over to, to Fordham from Yonkers. And it was only about a 15-minute drive, but on the drive, I watched Imus, uh, listened to Imus. So I was a huge fan of the show for years, and I got the job at night uh, co-producing the sports talk show. This is before the advent of 24-hour sports talk. Mm-hmm. NBC, WNBC had a sports talk show with a guy named Jack Spector and then Dave Sims. And I worked on those shows as a producer and a fill-in uh, reporter. And I would watch I'm uh, Imus... Um, not have a sportscaster on Mondays and Fridays because Don Crickey would always be away doing football. So I begged the uh, the general manager or the program director at the time. I said, "Any way I can fill in for Crickey on Mondays and Fridays?" I saw an opportunity, and he brought me back to the office and asked Imus if I could do it. <laughs> it's a kind of a
0: a story I've told before. Imus, because he was still drinking at the time. Mm-hmm.
1: He was so drunk in the afternoon that he could barely lift his head when I went in to meet him. And he agreed for me to come on on, uh, on the show the next morning to fill in for Cricky without ever even looking at me.
0: Hmm.
1: So the next morning I went in, and uh, he's looking at me as I sit down next to him to do my first sportscast. He has no idea who I am. <laughs> and on the air, he says to his newsman, Charles McCord, hey, Charles, who, who is this kid that says he's filling in for Crickey? Have you ever seen him before? And that's how my, my Imas career started. And it was hard. It was really hard at first, Steve, because he wanted me to just goof around and joke. And I, you know, I was young and naive, and I wanted just to do a straight sports cast and that's not what he wanted. So for, for the first three or four months, he would just crush me every day, just crush me on the air and off the air. And, um, I'd go home to my wife. I would just recently married and I'd go home to my wife and I'd say, I I don't know if I can do this. Um, actually this was before I got married, but I I remember it was really hard. And then eventually he taught me that it was okay to make fun of sports and still maintain my credibility as a legitimate sportscaster. Mm. He He kept telling me separate the two. He goes, one, when you're doing Knicks, when you're doing NBA, that's one thing. He says, but when you're doing this, people understand that it's, it's, you know, a satire and and it's not how you really feel. You just, you're doing comedy. And eventually him, he wore me down and I started goofing around and, mm-hmm. and poking fun at stuff. And, and it turned mm-hmm. into, uh, it turned into one of the, the great times for me personally and professionally, because I learned so much from, from the whole group, not just Nyman, the whole crew was was amazingly talented. And the other thing, because the show was so popular, it, it got my name out there, mm-hmm. and I was able to uh, to at least have
0: some recognition in the business. Now and then, through WFAN, 1992, become the radio voice of the Knicks. Was that a dream come true at the time?
1: That was a dream come true at the time, and it still is.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you know, it was. I did the pregame the year before, and then. The Knicks decided, or MSG decided, not to uh, not to renew Jim Carvelis, and I had established a relationship with Mike McCarthy, who was then the executive producer of the MSG Network, and he was in charge of making those hirings. And uh, fortunately for me, Mike really went to bat for me and and um, really pushed all the people to the MSG Network to and the Knicks to hire me as the as the radio announcer, and, and he was able to do it. And uh, it was, it was the biggest deal. I mean, I, I'll, I'll never forget hitting the call. And, and then a short time after I remember Marv called me to congratulate me and mm. it was, uh, it certainly was a dream come true.
0: And then eventually you become the full time TV voice and been working with Walt Clyde Frazier as your partner now for over 20 years. Does it ever get old to sit there next to him and call games? No,
1: and that's the truth. And, and even, you know, the Knicks have obviously struggled over the years, but, I mean, every single game where, where first I get to sit down at, at Santa Court at Madison Square Garden to call a, a Knick game, uh, it's just it's a privilege and it's an honor, and it's also it's a responsibility. Um, so I just love it, I, and I love the game uh, itself so much. Uh, that I still I, I just can't believe I'm doing it. And then when you look next to you and you see this this iconic sports figure, mm-hmm. who you know first he was he was my basketball idol when I was a kid. Then he became my partner, and now after all these years, you know he's such a dear friend. Um, these are the things you don't you don't ever dream of. So to to simply ask, ask answer your question, Stevie. You no, know, it's it's. Um, it's still a dream for me to to do these games, and I miss it so much right now. I can't wait to sit courtside of the garden and call another game.
0: I will say, you know, you walk in all these arenas and everything, and I, and I always feel, and a lot of people talk to me, and they're like, oh, what arena's great or whatever? And I said, you haven't been anywhere until you've been to a Knicks game at Madison Square Garden. I feel like there's this whole separate buzz in the building that just ignites everybody. Do you feel that?
1: Yeah, you know, people accuse me of being... Um, or of not being objective on that. And that's okay, and they're probably right. There is no better building for a big game and for a big event. Um, it's just it's got a special electricity to it, always has and always will. You know, there's some great arenas around the NBA, um, and both old, the old Boston Garden, the old Chicago Stadium, you know, today, uh, the old Oracle Arena. Uh, there's just... Arco Arena in Sacramento, these places are, are so much fun to do a game, but nothing to me measures against a big game at the Garden, and that's proven even when the Knicks have been struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be the end of a season where the Knicks are way out of a playoff ra- race, and it's a tie game with three minutes to go, and the place is just nuts. And it's, you'd think it was a playoff mm-hmm. game. It's uh, I, The main reason, obviously the building is is the key, but Uh, key one is the building key 1A is the fans the fans are just the best and they're so hungry for a winner and they just so appreciate a great effort and a great performance and that's when the team's a championship contender and that's when the team's a lottery team and that never changes
0: you've called national games for NBC and then when ABC took over uh, called games for them now a long time and now you're the record holder for most NBA final called I mean what does that mean to you?
1: It, it's hard to even process, uh, Steve. It's uh, to be able to do those games. Again, I, I know I'm being repetitive, um, but I, it, it really is such an honor. And I think of the the broadcasters that have done it, and, and I've mentioned Marv so many times already, and Dick Stockton, Al Michaels, uh, it's called final, Bob Costas. I mean, these are, these are, legends iconic figures in the sportscasting business and to be able to do the same thing that they did is it's sometimes it's hard to believe and i've been blessed in 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 so many more ways than i deserve um but the beauty of it is um there are so many people that are responsible for this and i've been able or at least i've tried to thank all of them over all this time because it's you know Basketball is a team sport. Well, broadcasting basketball is a team sport, too. And I've been so fortunate to work with with amazing people. Um, you know, if, if you don't have a great producer and director, if you don't have a great partner, um, and I just, you know, games at MSG, working with people like Howie Singer and Spencer Julian um, every single night, they just make you better. Um, and then to have Clyde or... John Andres, who was just such a wonderful friend and a great partner. Uh, even like Dave Freed, who does all my stats, he makes me a better broadcaster when, when I sit next to him. There, there's just so many people involved in it. And then you go back and, you know, family and friends and uh, all the people that, that believed in you and supported you and encouraged you and, and taught you. So it's, it's, uh, it's an honor that, that I take seriously, but it's an honor that I share with many, many people.
0: My father always says to me, never say blah, blah, blah. When you could just say blah. Was that the thinking with your signature call? Bang.
1: <laughs> I, actually, I actually like, you, hey, father. I like that. That's, that's a, uh, that's a great, great way to put it. Because I believe, uh, one of the keys for a broadcaster is to be concise. And, um, you know, when I, when I started using it, um, I didn't like it at first, I did it on radio. And then when I started using it on TV, what I liked about it was I I always saved it for big moments. And the big moment, especially when the Knicks were at home, the crowd is going crazy. And it's hard for broadcasters sometimes, because I don't have the the big powerful voice that some of the guys in the past have had. When a crowd's going crazy at a big moment, it's hard to, to make a high intensity call and, and get above the crowd, because the crowd can overwhelm the call. And if you try and overwhelm the crowd, it's just the voice doesn't sound right. So I always felt in a big moment uh, to be as concise as possible. And a one-syllable word like bang is as concise as you can get. So that's what initially got me to to mm-hmm. think, okay, this is a pretty good quick call on a, on a big moment. And then when I started using it, and people seemed to like it. Uh, It just seemed to fit nicely. Um, So yes, uh, blah is much better than blah
0: blah blah. (laughs) And you've had the opportunity to call basketball multiple Olympics, and you've even called ski jumping. Did did you ever? Do you always take pride in working the Olympics and calling USA basketball games? Is that something special to you?
1: I I do. Um, It's it's always. I remember because the Olympics. um, When you go do an Olympic as a broadcaster, you pretty much work the whole time. There's not a lot of time for sightseeing, not a lot of time to go seeing other events. So it's it's a hard job, and it's not easy because there's so many players that are involved in in your respective sport that you've never seen before. You know, for example, I, I did the U.S. U.S. Women's as well, so I, I had to prepare for games. United States playing against South Korea, or you do games like um, Angola playing China. Mm. And first, to get pronunciations of these players' names, get them right, get a little information on them. These are all players you've never seen. So, it's what I'm trying to say is it's hard work. And you always go into it, boy, I got a lot of work to do on this. But every time I finish the Olympics, it just, you do, you have this feeling of of pride, especially when it's on on foreign soil. Mm -hmm. And I've done Olympics in Athens and in China um, and in Australia. And when you're away from the country, for a good stretch and it's usually you know two to three weeks and you're in the midst of that you know uh, your team or your country is fighting for a gold medal you do feel a lot of patriotism and you feel a lot of pride and it's um it's always been such a rewarding experience not only experiencing different cultures but appreciating what you have back in this country uh, when you go other places and, and spend you know a decent amount of time there
0: And it was recently announced that you were the recipient of the 2020 Kirk Gowdy award inducting you into the basketball hall of fame this August. Where were you when you got the call? Who was with you? What was the emotions?
1: Well, I I had gotten a call as I was about to take off for a flight, but the flight attendants was always yelling at people to shut their phones off. So I didn't take the call. Hmm. And then when I took off, I went on my, um, my iPod, uh, my iPad, that is. And, um, went online and I got an email from the, the Hall of Fame uh, uh, John DeLiva who was the president of the Hall of Fame and that's how I found out and I read it on an email I'm sitting there by myself well, there's a gentleman sitting next to me and I, I got pretty emotional uh, because that's something that you don't ever think about hmm. ever and um, so I, I kind of was tearing up and I was trying to not let the guy next to me see that I was getting getting a little embarrassed but it was um it was a very moving moment for me and and again not to be repetitive Stevie but it was because when something like that happens you just immediately start thinking of of all the people there is such a long list of people um that I wanted to talk to you know the first person I thought of my dad who passed away back in 2011 and then uh, my mother and my brothers and the various people that helped along the way. So it's, it's really, uh, it's a time where you, th- you, you contemplate your, uh, your blessings and, and all the people in the life in your life that meant something to you. So, you know, it's, it's an award that, that I will accept along with uh, hundreds of other people who are responsible.
0: Well, Mike, I congratulate you on that and I appreciate you taking the time and, I can't wait to hear you again saying bang to someone's three-pointer in the NBA final, and hopefully it's sooner than later. But thank you very much for your time and coming on. Stevie, uh, it's always a pleasure to
1: to hear from you and talk to you. And uh, thank you. I can't wait to see you. So that means we're all back to work and doing what we should be doing. And, and I really appreciate the, appreciate the nice words and, and being able to spend some time with you.
0: Even with all of his success, Mike credits the people he has worked with as a key to that success. I am so happy for him to be headed to the Basketball Hall of Fame. Well deserved. Stay tuned for the next episode of Mike Check on Sports. Take care. Brush your hair.